Lord, in Jesus' name, would you bless us here on this Palm Sunday as we consider, Lord, your promises that in Jesus are yes and amen. Lord, and as I consider James chapter one, where James says, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, freely, and without reproach. And so, Lord, we ask for wisdom, both in this hour as we study together, but also, Lord, in our lives. Help us to not be those who lean on our own understanding, but in all of our ways acknowledge our Lord and Savior. Direct our paths, Lord. God, I'm so excited that even as I pray that prayer, all I'm really doing is aligning myself into what you're already doing. We don't have to convince you to be good, convince you to be on time, convince you to accomplish your will. We gotta convince ourselves that you're doing all those things. So Holy Spirit, settle us now as we get into your word, as we understand, Lord, your goodness for us. In Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said? Amen. Amen. I, I asked you guys to open up to Matthew, and I, I was making a mistake, but I'm gonna turn there anyways. I want you guys to see this. Matthew 21, you can turn there if your Bibles, if you want. You don't have to, you can just pay attention. Matthew 21, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. It says in verse one, it says, now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethpage at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying, go into the village opposite and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Loose them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them and immediately he will send them. Stop right there, eyes up here. The triumphal entry, Jesus setting up all things in order to do all things perfectly. And he contracted two of his disciples to go the opposite direction they were going. Don't you find that sometimes in your life you're just going the exact opposite direction that you chose? Maybe you're going the exact opposite direction you meant to. And yet God's plans will not be thwarted. His ways will not be stopped. And he sent the disciples the opposite direction. They were walking to Jerusalem. This would be a couple day journey from Galilee and they're getting there. Pretty soon they get to this one point and Jesus is like, all right, I want you guys to go to the village we just came from and get a donkey. Like, come again? Do you have a rental? Do you have an Uber? Isn't there another way to do this? No, you're going to walk in. You're going to see this donkey. Go ahead and snag that donkey. Steal that donkey. It's a long-term bar. We're going to give it back. It's okay. Steal the donkey. And then Jesus makes provision for the problem. He says, if anybody gives you pushback, just say this. Now, did Jesus know they were going to get pushback? They were going to get pushed back. And so he prepared them already. He could have, and, and so they, they, they go there and they do this. And you guys know they're grabbing this donkey. The owner comes out and says, hey, where are you taking my donkey? And like, the Lord needs your donkey. All right, you can have my donkey. You know, and it's just... Okay, this is kind of weird. And Jesus made it this way on purpose because your life's kind of weird. Everything you go through is all messed up. It's all weird. There's pushback, there's problems, and there's provision. If you're like me, I don't want problems or pushback. I just want it to go push through. Yesterday, I was actually looking at some land nearby here for what, what I believe God has in store for our church. And and I was just kind of going through my mental history of how long we've been looking for land. And this one particular landowner I was texting yesterday, the first time we, we began to text and, and, and have a relationship with 2014. How many of you guys remember 2014? It was 125 years ago. <laughs> I mean, 2014 is a long time ago. Some of you guys weren't even born yet, right? I mean, it's like seven years ago. And here I am still just, okay, Lord, this is, what are we doing? And the Lord's like, I'm doing so much in, in you, Luke. I'm doing so much in you. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be problems. There's also going to be provision. So, so the disciples do this. And, and it says here in the next verse, verse 4, I just want you to see this in Matthew 21. I'll read it to you. All this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. 
And then he quotes out of Zechariah 9.9. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, lowly and sitting on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Stop right there, eyes up here. All this was done in order that it might be fulfilled, which was already said, predicted, and prophesied. Zechariah 9.9 said that the Christ would come, the Messiah would come, and when he came, he'd come on a donkey. That's how he's got to roll in. And so here's Jesus putting all this together with pushback, with problems, with provision in order to fulfill his word. And to me, as I consider my Savior in my life and the ups and downs and the challenges, okay, you have to settle into the fact that your Savior knows what he's doing. So much so that he will fulfill every single word of prophecy in this book, every single promise to you. Even if it's kind of messy, kind of weird. Now, you guys know the story. I'm just going to go ahead and fill in the blanks on this Palm Sunday. I want you guys to settle into God's grace and God's power and God's provision. Jesus would ride in on that donkey. And as he rode in, in Luke chapter 19, the same kind of parallel portion of Scripture, Luke records it. The Bible says this. I'm going to read it to you out of Luke 19. It says, now as he drew near to the city, he saw it and he wept saying, if you had known, even you, especially in this day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. He prophesied the future of Jerusalem, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, close you in on every side, level you and your children within you to the ground. They will not leave one stone upon another, listen, because you did not know the time of your visitation. Now, you who have been Bible students for a while, you know this prophecy, not only Zechariah 9.9, where it says that Jesus would come in on a donkey. They should have been waiting. Hey, there's a donkey, a guy riding a donkey, a baby donkey. That donkey's so small, that guy's legs are dragging, you know. This is notable. But Jesus says it's the day of your visitation. You guys know all the way back in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9, a prophecy was given. And the prophecy was given, you who are Bible students, you know this, you who are just learning these things, pay attention. There was a prophecy given in the book of Daniel that the coming of the prince of Messiah would be 173,880 days after the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. It's called 69 weeks. A week in Hebrew is heptad. It's a seven-year period. It's 483 years. And if you take 483 years times 360 days, which is a Jewish calendar, it's 173,880 days. Let me just go ahead and tell you what I'm saying. In Daniel chapter 9, Daniel receives a vision from God, and it's a promise. If you know anything about Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's living in Babylon. It's not a, not a good situation. Daniel's parents have been slaughtered. Daniel's family had been murdered. Daniel had been in Babylon his entire life. Daniel would die in prison in Babylon, a slave. He would never be released. I don't know about you, but how many of you guys are waiting to be re released, you know? Let us take off the mask, you know? Let us, be, let us get out of this situation. Daniel would never get released. And yet God gave him the promises. And the promise was given. 69 weeks, 173,880 days. Listen, from the going forth of the command to rebuild Jerusalem. So he writes it down. And 100 years goes by. And in 100 years, a man came on the scene named Nehemiah. Some believe he was the shortest man in the Bible. He was Nehemiah. Just making sure you're still listening. Nehemiah comes on the scene. He too lives in Babylon and he's working for the king, Artaxerxes. And the Bible says in chapter two that he has a bad day. Nehemiah shows up to work and he's cranky. 
His allergies are kicking and he's crying. And Artaxerxes asks him, what's wrong with you? He says, I'm sad. And he says, what are you sad about? He says, I'm sad about my people in Jerusalem. They need their home rebuilt. You know, Xerxes, man, he must have had too much coffee that day. You know, and he says, you know what? I got a great idea. Let's send you back for the first time ever to Jerusalem. I'll fund it. I'll protect you. I'll make sure it all goes well. Let's rebuild Jerusalem. <laughs> this is crazy. Nehemiah 2, 100 years after Daniel. And the command, the command history, history, you can look this up, by the way. All secular historians record this. The command to rebuild Jerusalem was given, March 14th, 445 BC. Let's rebuild it. Pop quiz, bonus points. How many days did it take them to rebuild? Starts with 50, rhymes with two. 52. Hopefully, don't come back to the 11 a.m. service. Don't ruin that one. 52, Pastor, you know. 52 days, they build, the te- they build the wall. Nehemiah goes back. You guys know the story, right? But the command was given on March 14th, 445 B.C. Now, if you take your calendar, Jewish calendar, and go from March 14th, 445 B.C., 173,880 days, it takes you to April 6th, A.D. 32. Luke 19. Palm Sunday. And Jesus rolls in on a donkey, and he cries. He weeps. He says, guys. And he prophesies the destruction, the future destruction. I don't believe that's what he was crying about. Maybe it was. Maybe it was that he had all things in order. And they missed it. He said in Luke 19. Your eyes are hidden from these things. 173,880 days to the day. Zechariah 9, donkey, had to be this way. The command to rebuild Jerusalem came from Artaxerxes, a secular, godless king. The prophecy was first given to Daniel as he was serving Darius the king, another godless king from the Medo-Persian Empire. Jesus rolls in under Roman occupation on a donkey. How many guys, if you're going to roll in and save the world, you're going to choose a donkey? Anybody? Okay. I'm choosing a hog, a Harley, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> rah, 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 you know, I'm gonna come in on a tank or something, Sherman tank or a jet or something, man. Even just a beach cruiser, not a donkey. Yet all things were fulfilled. And here's what I just wanna make a simple application. This is so important. The promise was given to Daniel. The prophecy began to be fulfilled in Nehemiah. Jesus pulled through and did it perfectly in the book of Luke. Zechariah, none of these stories in their historical backdrop are good. There's nothing good going on. Difficulty, oppression, governmental occupation, overreach, chaos, calamity, tears. And yet God was doing all things perfectly. Matthew 21, all of this was done in order to fulfill what the prophet said. Behold, the Messiah is here. I say that to you Christians, you who are watching on line at home, you who are here, you who are walking with others through the valley of the shadow of death. It's been kind of a tough couple weeks. I was driving home from a memorial yesterday and I was thinking of a memorial I did two weeks ago and other memorials I'm planning. People who are hurting, people who are suffering. 
And maybe your suffering's not memorial or death or cancer or difficulty. Maybe it's just, man, try to get that thing and try to get that promotion at work or try to get work or something small. Maybe it's something smaller than death and, and, and disease. But when you get problems and pushback, maybe you're like me and you wrestle with that a little bit. And what I want to do is I want to say, Lord, if you were able to give a promise to Daniel and you were able to fulfill it with Nehemiah and you were able to show it in Zechariah and then you were able to bring it to pass in the gospel of Luke, who am I? Who am I to doubt what you're doing right now? And so on this Palm Sunday, may we be worshipers in spirit and in truth, no matter what's going on around you. Isn't that exciting? I mean, get excited. The Lord knows what he's doing. And we get a chance to be a part of it. We're all gonna die. This is our chance. Your day will come, some before others. You don't really get to control that. And if you got a pulse, you have an amazing purpose. And if you take your pulse, live for your purpose now, even when your pulse ceases, you can still have a purpose. Your legacy will continue. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness, for your word, and for Palm Sunday. And Lord, I repent. Maybe you need to repent with me. Lord, I repent of being a baby, being a crybaby complainer, Lord, of being distracted and weird and doing stupid stuff, just getting off track. Lord, I just repent. May we be those men and women who are focused, who when Jesus shows up today in Bible study or later at lunch or tomorrow or this week, he wouldn't look at our lives and weep because we're missing it. So Lord, forgive us and empower us now provide for us even through and with the problems with the pushback. Bless us now as we continue our study through 1 Peter chapter 4. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Take your Bibles now and let's go to 1 Peter 4. Peter who saw Jesus come in on the donkey. Peter who saw Jesus live through Passion Week. Throughout the rest of the week as Jesus would come into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he would come in and survey Jerusalem and he would leave every single night. He wouldn't stay in Jerusalem. He would hang out, and then he would leave. The Bible says that he would go to Bethsaida, to Bethany. He would leave, and he would camp. He would stay at friend's house. And the next day, he'd come back into Jerusalem every day during Passion Week. He would mingle with the sinners. He would melee with the Pharisees. And every single night, he would bounce out until the final Thursday Last Supper. When they'd be eating, he'd be arrested be betrayed, denied, tried, crucified on Friday morning. So this Friday when we gather together, we're going to consider Jesus and what he went through and who he is and his commitment to the process. But right now, that same Peter, he writes to a church who is going through suffering and that suffering was only going to intensify. As a matter of fact, read with me verse 7. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, the therefore is always therefore a reason, Bible students. It's a conclusion based on the other things that he'd already told us. 
Now that we're Christians and we don't do the same things we used to do, we're not running amok, but instead we're looking at suffering in our lives and instead of suffering, listening, turning us to sinning, which is so often the case when you get under pressure, when you're undergunned and he says, instead of turning to sin, turn to serving because all of the end has come. Look at verse seven again. I want you to see this. He says, but the end of all things is at hand. Stop right there. And as I appear, what Peter is basically saying, in addition to the fact that his life's about to end, your life's about to end, every one of our lives are gonna end, but he's saying that all of the prophecies that we were just talking about, all the things that we are waiting for, especially as good Jewish people, men and women, <laughs> it's all done. The only thing we're waiting for now is Jesus to wrap this thing up and to assign everyone either eternally to heaven or eternally to hell. That's all we're waiting for. You see, the Jews were always waiting for prophecies, always waiting for fulfillment, always waiting for the next thing. And Peter was able to surmise and say, you know what? It's all done. Jesus lived, Jesus died, Jesus rose, and Jesus ascended. It's done. We're just now simply waiting for him to wrap things up. There are no more prophecies necessary to be fulfilled for the rapture to happen. Jesus can come back at any single moment. Maybe even in the next five seconds. Okay. Wouldn't that have been awesome? But the end of all things is at hand. So be serious and watchful in your prayers. When you real, if you're waiting for something to happen before something happens, you're probably not going to wait very well for something to happen. But if you don't have to wait for anything else to happen, for something to happen, you're going to be on point. We don't have to wait for anything else to happen. Israel's been reunited back in 1947, 48, right after World War II. The timepiece of God's return is ticking. There's nothing else that needs to happen for Jesus to blow that trumpet and rapture his church home. And if you wake up every day and live with the blessed assurance, the hope of his return, it'll change the way you navigate through life. Not only that, but this could be the last day for you. We just don't know. So in the midst of suffering, we've been learning about suffering. I just want to make a few points about suffering before we keep going. Suffering isn't an option. It is a promise. Okay, you guys should know that by now. Four things we've learned in the last couple of verses that suffering does for us. Number one, it loosens our grip on sin. Hey, get your bell rung a few times. You stop messing with the world as much. Number two, it refocuses us on God's will rather than our own selfish will. Number three, it makes people look at us differently. Peter said, they're gonna look at you differently when you stop sinning. Did you know you're supposed to be looked at differently? You're supposed to be salt. You're supposed to be light. You're supposed to be a witness. One of our biggest, listen, young people, one of our big, young people, listen, old people too, everyone listen. One of our biggest tragedies and travesties is trying to blend in with the world and be like everyone else. You're supposed to be different. Your love, your authenticity, your trajectory, your faith. Don't try and just be accepted by the world. When all men speak well of you, whoa, not a good day. People are going to look at you differently. Number four, and then we'll move on. It makes us stay focused on the end. The end of all things is at hand. When you've suffered, when you know it's almost over, it's a good thing. I used to wrestle in high school, and I did fairly well. I wrestled at the state level a couple years in a row, and I went on to wrestle in college. And one of the things that we would make wrestlers listen for is coaching on the sidelines. And one of the best things you could ever hear as a wrestler while wrestling is this, this little cue. Short time! Short time! That means you just got a little bit longer to go. Okay, you're almost done because you're about to die. And you could be getting pinned in the coach short time, you know, or you could be holding somebody in a position. And when you hear that, man, 
It's the best thing you've ever heard. Short time. It means there's 30 seconds left. Just don't give up any ground. Don't stop. Don't give up. You can do anything for 30 seconds. You can do anything for a minute. What Peter's saying here is, but the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. I like how the ESV renders this version. It says, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Self-controlled, sober-minded, serious, watchful. For the sake of your prayers. Quick question, how's your prayer life? Well, I talk a lot. I talk a lot. No, I said, how's your prayer life? I, I don't know. The disciples only ever asked Jesus to teach them one thing, and it was to pray. They didn't ask for miracle power. They didn't ask for help in walking on water, how to heal people, how to multiply bread, how to make wine into water. That'd be a good party trick. They didn't ask about that. They said, Lord, we, we, just, we sense that all that is tied to your prayer life. Jesus even said in Matthew 17, he said, the only way that some demons come out is through prayer. A lifestyle of prayer. So teach us to pray. Prayer does a few things. Okay, number one, prayer is always answered. You guys know that, right? Every single time you ever pray, there's one of three answers given. Yes, no, and not yet. Sometimes people stop praying because they didn't get the answer they wanted or they didn't get an answer. You got an answer. It might not have been the one you wanted, though. Keep praying. You have not because you ask not. Somebody came up with an acronym of PUSH. Pray until something happens, okay? Just keep praying. Prayer. You're going to get an answer. It might not always be the one you want. Number two, prayer always changes you and sometimes changes your circumstances. You guys seen this before? Prayer always changes you, and sometimes it changes your circumstances. When you pray and give it to the Lord, you get the peace that passes understanding. You get changed even if your circumstance isn't changed. That's worth it, by the way. Number three, prayer is a way that we personally process verbally the things we're going through. How many of you guys are verbal processors? Like you're not quite sure where you need to be, so you need to talk to somebody about it to get to the end. Okay, not everyone's a verbal processor. I think all of us are to a degree. It's important that you understand this about yourself because if you're talking to somebody who's not a verbal processor, they're gonna think you have it all together at the beginning of your conversation, but by the time you're at the end of your conversation, you figured everything out. This is how the Psalms are structured, verbal processing. The Psalms will talk about the situation, God's faithfulness, and their conclusion. They just process. Did you know when you're praying, not just simple prayers, but long prayers, purposeful prayers, serious prayers, watchful prayers, sober-minded prayers, self-controlled prayers, you're gonna get that answer. Yes, no, not yet. You're gonna change, and you're gonna process verbally with the Lord. And the fourth thing, if you're not writing this down, you should be, the fourth thing that prayer is, it's a burden transfer. Guys, this is maybe the most important thing. We're gonna see in the next chapter, chapter five, Peter says, cast your cares upon the Lord, knowing he cares for you. How many of you guys are carrying all of your cares right now? And you're just carrying them all, and you're good at it. Wake up in the morning, gotta put this backpack on. I got this little side bag over here. Got a bunch of bags downstairs, too. I'm gonna carry those with me everywhere I go today. I'm a good person. I care about all this stuff. Peter says, hey, cast those cares on the Lord. If after prayer you still are stressed or burdened, I'm just going to be, you're doing it wrong. You're doing it wrong. You're not praying. You're just complaining. If you truly 
are casting your cares upon the Lord, you'll be given the peace that passes understanding. Glad I gave that to the Lord. I'm glad that's not my problem. I'm glad that's his now. Cast your cares on the Lord, knowing he cares for you. It's a burden transfer. If you're still burdened after praying, you're doing it wrong. Prayer. Watchful prayer. You know what? Suffering is designed to make you pray. This is all, this whole chapter seven, whole whole, whole book really is all in context of suffering. So if you're suffering right now, ask that question, am I praying? Or am I just complaining? Or am I just overthinking? Or am I just dialoguing? It's not the same. Don't be deceived today. If after you've processed with somebody or prayed, you want to keep talking about your problem, something's wrong. Something's wrong. Give it to the Lord. How many of you guys cast your cares upon the Lord and then grab them right back? I'm going to grab that back now. I got to go. <laughs> I was like, what are you doing? Leave that here, bro. You can't handle it. Your trial is designed to make you a prayer person. It's been said before, there's no atheists in foxholes. You ever heard that before? Man, you start, bullets start flying, pressure starts mounting. Everybody's a believer. <laughs> Everybody's praying. <laughs> it's no different with Christians. Man, we gotta keep going here. You guys aren't listening fast enough. Gotta get to verse 11 somehow. Verse 80 says, and above all of these things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. As he continues to process here with his readers and with the church that are suffering, he says, you know what I want you guys to do? Not only do I want you guys to be praying, but I want you guys to be loving. I want you guys to be those who have fervent love one for another. I like how he says above all these other things. I want to connect this with verses three, where he says, uh, we spent enough time uh, walking in lewdness, lust, drunkenness, revelries, drinking parties, and abominable idolatries. He's told people, when you're sinning, don't, su- don't, when you're suffering, don't sin. Don't give yourself a hall pass. Don't do that. And when you're suffering, make sure that you're also serving in prayer and in love. But above all these things, above what things? Above cleaning your life up on the outside, this is what he's saying, above all that, make sure you're walking in love. Let me just give a quick question here. Have you guys ever met a Christian who doesn't do the lewdness, isn't into the debauchery, isn't into craziness, isn't into all the revelries? They're not doing all that stuff, but they also don't have love. Nope, just just me and Carl. These are religious, the quintessential religious person. And they don't have all these problems on the outside, and they just got this long nose, and they're just judging everyone else around them. I've been that person before. I got cleaned up pretty good on the outside. And Peter here and Jesus also would say, hey, hey, that's cool. But hey, good, good job, duh. <laughs> Don't do dumb stuff. That's not that hard. You know what is hard? Being loving to everybody. Fervent love. Jesus said in John 13, 35, right after he washed the disciples' feet because nobody else wanted to, Jesus said, by your love one for another, they'll know you're my disciples. So often we get religiously confused and thinking that it's about what we do on the outside, horizontal, you know, things and cleanups and that I don't do this and I don't do that. And I used to do that and I'm not gonna do that ever again. The Lord's like, hey, you know what? If you have all the gifts, 1 Corinthians 13, but lack love, it's nothing. Let's go ahead and turn this into a positive because he says it's a positive way. I want you to see this. And above these things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now love, have you ever tried loving somebody and they didn't love you back? You ever tried that? So you give up? I ain't loving that person back. You ever tried to hug somebody that doesn't hug you back? So weird. It's like hugging a pizza box. You know, you're like, whoa, dude. Even a pizza box is better because there's pizza in it, you know? <laughs> 
tried loving them, it didn't work. Tried loving them, they hurt you. Tried loving them, they didn't love you back. This verse, fervent love one for another, along with all of the other verses and commands to serve and love those who don't love us, those who despise us, love your enemies. I'm telling you something. We play our cards pretty carefully, don't we? I'll love you if you love me back. And if you don't love me back, I ain't ever going to love you again. And it's like, where's that at? I don't see that verse. That's like in a different book. You know what I mean? That's in a different book. I got lots of people I love to love. I got a few people I try and love. I got some people I'm not even interested in loving. Just that's the way I, that's, that's my life. And if I took this verse and Jesus' model, man, this, wouldn't it be awesome if our church was known for our love for everybody? Like, let's just take this first spin this week. Maybe even right now, just ask the Lord to reveal some people that are hard to love in your life. They're just hard to love. And instead of loving them from afar, love them close. Maybe this week, send a text, send a message. Be nice. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's a family member. Maybe it's somebody that, they're not going to reciprocate the love. They might, it might not, it's not even going to go well at all. Wouldn't that be awesome if you said, I don't care. I have a verse that says I can love you. I have a verse that says I'm supposed to love you. And when I do the motion and I do what God says, I'm going to trust God to give me the emotion. He's going to heal my heart. He's going to transform your life. I love when the apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was Saul and he was a murderer and he was blind and he was stuck in Ananias' or he was stuck at Judas's house. And the Bible says that God spoke to Ananias, or Ananias, and he said, I want you to go pray for this guy. And Ananias argued with the Lord. He's like, Lord, you know, how, you know how bad this guy is. This guy's a bad guy. He killed our brothers and sisters. You want to go pray for him? And the Lord wouldn't let up. The Lord said, did I stutter? Go pray for him, you know. Read it. Acts chapter 9. So Ananias goes, and he lays hands on Saul. And if it were me, here's Saul blind. He killed some, some Christians. What kind of hands would you lay on him? Maybe like two right around the neck. I'll pray for you, bro. You know, the guy's blind. You sneak up on him. I'm going to pray real good for you. <laughs> the Bible says that he lays hands on Saul and says, Brother Saul. Not murderer Saul, not brutal Saul, not bad guy Saul. Brother Saul. And then he prays for him. And the Bible says that Saul's eyes become like scales and they're dropped. And he sees and he looks at Ananias and he says, baptize me, baptize me. Sometimes all you need is just one verse to convince you it's okay to love your enemies. It's okay to be extra nice, like crazy nice, stupid nice. Don't love because they're lovable or because you're gonna get love in return. Above all these things, above what things? Staying clean. I don't know about you, but I, I, I struggle with my sin. I fight, my, my sin shows up. Man, temptation's there every day, and I'm working hard to, ah, you know, and that's good. Don't ever let your guard down, okay? That's dumb, okay? But are you working just as hard? Are you struggling just as hard to be the most loving neighbor, most loving spouse? Walk into that store. I mean, I just want to be known as a, a loving person, not as a holy person. We spend a lot of time wanting to be holy, and, and both are important. Jesus didn't say it's by your holiness and by your law-abidingness and all your toe-in-the-line-ness, they're going to know you're my disciples. Transforming love. Okay, that's your assignment this week, walk in love. Why? Because it covers a multitude of sins. That doesn't mean that it masks it or pretends it doesn't happen. When you walk in love, you cover your buddy. You ever watch the war movies? Cover me! And you're running in, you cover me, I'm about to get shot at. When you love people, okay, you serve them in that way. 
if you're like me, you have a real burden for humanity and for the world. Like you want this thing to, you want people to, man, how are you going to cover people? Love them. How are you going to make sure somebody knows that Jesus is real, that you're sure it's legit? How are you going to cover them? Love. Love covers a multitude of sins. Verse 90 says, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, in this culture and in that day in Rome, Christians were getting saved and they would become homeless. They'd have to move out of their homes. And so what he's saying is by way of necessity, people were letting other Christians live with them. Recently, my family and I watched the, uh, Paul the Apostle. Uh, it's a movie that just came out in uh, 2020 or 2019, something like that. And, and it showed the Roman Christians getting saved and how they would just, it was just hard. So you had to be hospitable. So Peter gives them instructions to make sure you still are hospitable without grumbling, without complaining, without whining. Here's the way I would apply this to our lives here today, though. When you are suffering, okay, you're going to do the opposite of hospitality in one of two ways. Listen, please. When you're suffering, you're either going to get in this ditch, which is not hospitable, where you're going to do nothing but think about yourself, talk about yourself, post about yourself, and put attention on yourself. You ever seen this wounded person before? They're hurt. They're suffering. Life's upside down, and all they want to do is talk about themselves. Okay, this is one ditch. There's another ditch over here when you're suffering, when you're hurt, when you're the victim, when things didn't go right. You're gonna become isolated. You're gonna become an introvert. You're not gonna become hospitable. No one's getting into your life because you're just gonna protect yourself, me, myself, and I, and just us. Both are ditches of non-hospitality. Which one are you prone to? When you suffer? When you suffer, when life's hard, when things are challenging, do you make it all about yourself? That's, my, that's what I do. And I'm just so quick to turn it about myself and the conversation about myself and, you know, the tension on myself. And that's enough of me talking about me. How about you talk about me now? It's the opposite of hospitality. And then sometimes we get into the ditch where we say, you know what? Life's just so stinking tough. I don't even want to deal with it anymore. Be hospitable. In, in the scriptures, we're commanded to be hospitable more than once. It's actually a challenge for me. It doesn't mean to the people you like and love, you know, have your friends over, the, the same three friends you always have over your, you know, have people over that you, that you don't like and love or, or know. Hospitality literally is entertaining strangers. Be hospitable without grumbling. Grumbling's like an American pastime, isn't it? It's what we do. We post on Facebook. We post on social media. We grumble. How's your day? Well, you know, it could have been better. And we start to tell our war stories. You know, we just grumble. Here's the problem with grumbling. Grumbling doesn't actually help your situation, does it? It doesn't help your situation. As a matter of fact, grumbling is a sin because what you're doing when you're grumbling is you're challenging God and his authority and his ability to help your life out. You're challenging God saying, I just don't, you know, my, my life's all messed up here, so I want to talk about it here. And it could be verbal processing. It could be burden sharing. It could be that, but usually it's just grumbling. Grumbling, you know, the children of Israel spent a decent time in the wilderness because of grumbling. Grumble, grumble, grumble talking about God and what he'd done, what he hadn't done, how he'd come up short. And the whole time, God's just looking at him, what are you talking about? And as soon as, sometimes we say this in our, in our grumbling. Well, as soon as this stops, I'll stop grumbling. And it's almost as if God says, as soon as you stop grumbling, this may stop. I said may, by the way. I didn't say it would. Grumbling doesn't help. Not only does it not help, but it's a sin. Complaining. Wouldn't this be awesome to take this for a spin this week too? Because we're so quick to post. I mean, we're all, we're all famous now. Everyone's got a Facebook account. Everyone's got an audience. Everyone's an influencer. Everyone has a voice. The book of James actually says it's a warning to those who use their tongue. It says, be careful, bro. Your tongue is set on fire by hell itself. Careful how you use your tongue. 
not everyone's always had the platform that we do now in, in America and, and where we're at to, to speak and influence. I dare you, take that first spin. Don't be a grumbler this week. To God's glory, to the betterment of the people around you. Verse nine, be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Number 10, or verse 10, it says, as each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Instead of sinning while suffering, let your suffering turn you into a servant. Each one of you have a gift to give to somebody else. And those gifts come two ways. Number one, by design. God has given designed gifts to every single person in this room, everyone at home, everyone who's ever been created by God's grace. He puts design and he puts gifts inside of you. Secondly, not just by design, but by experience. Listen, please. Both are important. Your life, the way you were raised, the way you were born, the family you grew up in, the things you've overcome, the suffering you've endured, the issues you deal with are your experience. And because of what you've gone through, because of who you are, because of the way life came at you, you now have something to offer somebody else who's in a similar situation who's just a few steps behind you. Your divorce, your disease, your abuse, your suffering, your difficulty, it is expensive. Did it not cost you? Did you not suffer? Did it not take from you your peace, your years? Did it not produce tears and depression? Here's your choice. What are you going to do now, now that you've got all these scars and all this baggage? I'm going to read verse 10 again. As each of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Don't let your pain be wasted. Instead, take your pain and invest it in others. You're not the only one who's suffering. You're not the only one who's gone through something. Maybe you're going through something right now and you feel like you're the only one. Wouldn't it be awesome if God provided for you right now in your life somebody who's been there, done that? Somebody who's had a spouse pass away? Somebody who's lost it all? Somebody who's experienced failure and been put back together? See, we tend to look at the gifts that are given to us by design as the reason we live and our validation and our offering, and that's true. I'm going to talk about the gifts in just a minute. You can write it down in your Bible. They're listed in 1 Corinthians 12 and also in Romans 12. There's seven gifts listed in Romans 12. There's nine gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12. The lists that are given in our scriptures are not exhaustive. A lot of people want to know their spiritual gift. Don't you want to know your spiritual gift? You should know your spiritual gift. Figure it out. What's your gift? Let me read verse 10 again. As each one of you has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. But not just your design gifts, your experiential gifts. What if you took that for a spin this week and said, you know what, I suffered. Man, I got, my, my kids ended up going weird. My finances went weird. My health just went weird. My business went weird. My best friend went weird. Maybe you're on the others. Maybe I went weird. Don't raise your hand, but how many of you, how many of you guys are the problem? You know what I'm saying? I got lots of problems around me, but sometimes I am the problem. That's an experience. That's an experience. And what you're going through right now isn't just about you but it could be that God wants to bless somebody else through you. I've seen this happen dozens of times, hundreds of times. 
go through a miscarriage. You bury a kid. Your house burns down. You get into a car wreck. Tragedy strikes your family. I met with a friend of mine in Walport a couple weeks ago. She's a widow. And I was actually there for a couple reasons. And it was so, such a joy. Her husband died 16 years ago. And to see the, the healing that has happened in her life, and the confidence, knowing that it was so many years past, and I'm walking the road with a couple other people who've recently lost their spouses, and it's a more fragile time. And to see her, not even knowing this other person, but to see her with the confidence, oh, yeah, I remember the first year. I remember and then to see the healing on the other side of your experience, and maybe you're like me, and you do have some losses, some things in your past. I wish I wouldn't have gone through that. Well, did you? Yeah. Well, maybe there's somebody else who's right at the beginning of their journey. Okay. Okay. I can help them. Maybe it's a successful thing. Maybe it's not just a suffering thing. Maybe you had a, an issue in front of you that was a real big challenge, but you went through with flying colors. You started a business, man, it's successful now. Or you built a house, or you bought a car and restored it. You do this now, and somebody else wants to know, how can I do this? You, oh, man, I'd love to show you what I know. I'd love to share with you the gifts of God's grace in my life for your help, for God's glory. He goes on in verse 11. He says, if anyone speaks... Let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability which God supplies. That in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Stop right there, eyes up here. If anyone speaks, if anyone serves, let him do it for the glory of God by the power of God. It says here, if anyone speaks for God, let him speak as the very oracles of God. I had to read that a few times. I was like, what? And here's what I want you to hear. There are two primary ways we serve others around us, word and service. What you say and what you do. It's not about you, it's about serving other people. And when you serve and when you speak, do it with confidence in the authority of God himself for his glory, but as messengers of God. Yesterday I did a memorial in the bay at Depot Bay for Dustin Couch. He passed away last Saturday. His family was up, and as I was talking with Colin Phillips, his brother, will be here at the next service, I said, Colin, here's what I want you to do tomorrow. I want whatever you say, and here's what I'm going to do tomorrow. So whatever I say, I'm going to say it with confidence. I'm going to say it with authority. I'm going to speak to them on behalf of God, and then I'm going to pray to God on behalf of them. And this is what we do as men and women. We speak the truth in service and in word through your experiences, in your pain. Wouldn't this be awesome if we believe this? If you left here today saying, man, I'm so thankful for Pastor Luke. Glad he's doing his job. Good job, Pastor Luke. I want to keep praying for him. Not my problem, though. Thanks, Rory. <laughs> if you left here, don't leave here thinking about Pastor Luke too much, about what he's doing, what he's going to do this week. You leave here edified and equipped for the purposes that God has for you, for the works of ministry. Sid, the kid, sitting there in the back, he came in earlier this week, and I was teaching him how to make hoodies up to upstairs. And God's working in his life right now, stirring him up. 
And I told him the principle for ministry, show up early, stay late, say yes to everything. Become valuable, become good at something, become important, become influential, become reliable, become faithful, be around, show up, stay early, stay, do whatever needs to be done. Be that person in your family, in your business, in your church, in your ministry, in your community, where people look to you and they say, oh, you know, I know a faithful woman, I'll call her. I know a faithful man, I'll call him. He's hospitable. What's that mean? It means he's not always talking about himself. It means he's not always hiding from everyone else. It means he's about other people's business. These are the commands that Peter gives us here. I think it's gonna flow the best to do this. I'm just gonna take the extra time. I wanna read the gifts to you out of Romans chapter 12. It won't take long. He says this, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Prophecy is just declaring God's truth to whoever's listening, okay? It could be a word, it could be something deep, but it's God's truth. He says, or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. Did you know that one of the gifts that God gives to people is just ministry in ministering? He goes on to say, he who teaches in teaching. I remember when I was 19 years old, I was laying in bed at San Beo Circle, my parents' house, and I was coming from a Bible study, and I couldn't stop thinking about the scriptures and how to teach them in an illustrative, applicational way. For hours, I would put sermons together in my head. Hours and hours, and I thought, That's, is this normal? Is this normal? Is this how most people think about the scriptures? Just sermon after sermon, being birthed in my mind, knowing that God had called me at age eight to be a pastor, to be a teacher. It's a gift. What's your gift? He who exhorts in exhortation. The word there, exhort, is encourage. I remember my roommate right after college, Jeremy Haskell, we were talking about spiritual gifts, and one day he said his spiritual gift was encouragement, this, this gift here. And my response was, is that's a stupid gift? <laughs> I'm just being honest. What kind of gift is encouragement? What a lame gift, bro. Lame. Till a few weeks later when I needed to be encouraged. Till a few weeks later when I needed to be exhorted. You know who exhorted me and encouraged me? Jeremy Haskell. Wouldn't that be a rad gift? Just find somebody who's on the ropes. I was on the ropes. Man, I hit a pothole bad in my spiritual journey. It was bad. Here comes Jeremy Haskell. Gift of encouragement. Gift of exhortation. He who exhorts in exhortation. He who gives with liberality. Do you know it's a spiritual gift to write checks to the Lord? Givers. They just give. They, maybe they don't even show up to the limelight. They're not on a committee. They just give. He who leads, this is important, with diligence. If you're a leader here, and I have a few people that come to my mind who are leaders, in everything they do, they just can't really settle in the back. They're not really good number twos. If they're a number two, they don't really do well. They're only good in the number one position, okay? If that's who you are, be a good leader in everything you do. Get a vision from the Lord and accomplish it. If you're a number two, find out how to be an exhorter, how to be a ministry person. Figure out your gift and do it for the glory of God. He who leads with diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I think of Regina here. Just mercy. Then the gift of mercy, it'll flip your life upside down when it's already upside down. 
Somebody comes to you and puts you back together. Guys, here's what I'll say. There's seven gifts that I just read. I'm gonna read to you nine more and we're done. And I think it's important that you see it in this context because I want you guys to walk in your gifts. I want you guys to be stirred up and encouraged. It says in 1 Corinthians 12, 4, there are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministry, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. Here's the nine. For to one is given the word of wisdom through the spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same spirit. To another, faith, the same spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same spirit. To another, the workings of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, discerning of spirits. To another, different kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. He goes on to talk about the body of Christ and how we're knit together. This is so awesome. Our diversities by design and our diversities by experience. You are who you are. Your life has come to this point. What I would encourage you to do is to turn your hands upside down and to say, Lord, take it all. God will bring to you eventually, somehow, some way, maybe it's somebody right now that you can minister your experience too. Don't waste the pain, invest it. It might be more calculated than just turning your hands upside down though. It may be where you realize, recognize, and resolve to say, Lord, thank you for calling me to be a leader. I'm gonna lead with diligence. Yeah, I'm gonna make stuff happen. I'm gonna get stuff done. Maybe you're a teacher. Maybe you have mercy. You're an exhorter. You're a giver. You're a ministry person. Here's a couple questions I'll ask you by way of finding out your spiritual gift. What in your life have you had success or effectivity in? Maybe you're a young person, you're like, Fortnite. My mom tells stories about when I was a, a, a kid and how I would organize all my friends. Bring them all together. Here's what we're doing. Here's the games we're playing. Here's how it's going to go. Here's, the, you know, just really organized. Today we call it high control. <laughs> and, and, and it's how the Lord made me. A, control, a visionary. I see things. I, I know how this could work. You do that. I'll do this. We do this. If we do this together, it's going to work this way. It's how it's going to go. What have you experienced in your life that you've been good at? There's been effectivity. You're just, I don't know. I'm not just good at this. Really? <laughs> You think that's on accident? My wife has a good ear. She can listen to people. And they feel heard. And they feel healed. It's the gift of mercy. It's the gift of listening. Okay, if you talk to me too long, my eyes are gonna go crossed and I'm gonna get a migraine. <laughs> I, don't have the, I don't have the gift. <laughs> I try. Oh, man. What are you good at? What has the Lord given you? And how have you seen it bear fruit? The second thing I would say, not only what you're good at, but what's, what's lastly, in, in, in closing, what stirs you up? What excites you? Those two things will be parallel. 
not perfect. You should get excited about some things that nobody else gets excited about. You should be fired up about it. Here's one of the problems I come in, into, is I get excited about something. If I don't find the right people to be excited about it with me, I'll give up. Maybe you've done that. Maybe you're excited about a prayer group, Mom's in Touch or something like that, or some ministry team or street evangelism, some after-school program, some, some thing, some missions thing, and nobody else wants to do it. Okay, find the people that are like-minded, or, or maybe you don't even worry about the people that don't see your vision. For the end of all things is at hand. And may the Lord convict me, may the Lord convict us in those areas where he's gifted us by design, he's gifted us by experience, and we have not been good stewards. Jesus gave more than one parable, more than one teaching, more than one chapter of the Gospels dedicated to believing and realizing that he's coming back and he's going to look at your records. What'd you do with the time I gave you? What'd you do with the resources I gave you? Did you invest them? Did you get an ROI, a return on investment? Were you wise with your time? And he gave some serious words. Because he says, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. I'm gonna run out of time here. I already did. It's too late. <laughs> Let me say this, though. Your life is not your own. It was bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, which is his. A lot of people don't get saved. A lot of people don't become Christians because while they want a hall pass, they want forgiveness. They want to be alleviated from their sin. They don't want God to be in control of everything. I'm telling you right now, he is in control of everything. He is in control of everything, your life. You are not the owner. You are the steward. He owns you. You are just the steward. Lord, in Jesus' name, would you help us? Lord, would you forgive us? Oh, I thank you for your great grace, which flows so freely here today for knuckleheads like me. Maybe you're a knucklehead. If you, need, if you need mercy and grace this morning, like me, would you just raise your hand? My hand's already up. Lord, would you forgive me? Forgive me for being selfish. Just raise your hand if you need just a jump start. Man, you need a kick start. You need cleansing. Lord, just anoint us. Help us to be those men and women who by design, Lord, and experience are gonna take our lives and live for the glory of God and the good of others. Forgive us of our sins, Lord. Lead us, Lord. Use our lives. Empower us and equip us. Holy Spirit, forgive us and fight our battles. May we learn to pray. May we learn to be hospitable. May we learn to be loving. May we do all these things in the midst of suffering, Lord. We need you. We lift up our hands to you. If you need an anointing from the Lord, lift up your hand right now. You need to be saved or forgiven or empowered. My hands are up, Lord. Help us to walk with you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said? Amen, amen and amen. God bless you.